we stood up. Uh, it might have been. Let's pray. <laughs> um, Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for giving us your word to study and to reflect on. Um, would you open it up to us today? Would you show us um, your will and your ways and um, your character through the things that you revealed to Israel, that you revealed to Moses um, so many thousands of years ago? And would you use it to sanctify us um, Would you help us to glorify you and to enjoy you through these things? And would you help us to um, know you better by studying uh, your law? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I'm actually going to close this door before the youth line. So I think everybody got handouts, and um, we're, on, we're, we're in Leviticus uh, today. So I could, I, I thought about like hanging out in Exodus a little bit more, but we've only got five weeks, and there, there are five books to work with, so I thought, let's just keep on moving. So um, we're in Leviticus uh, today. We'll, we're going to turn there in a minute. First... Um, go ahead and open up to um, Mark chapter 7. We're going to talk about something um, there shortly. But Leviticus is the third of the um, five books of the law. And in a lot of ways, the, the law kind of forms a chiastic structure. You have in Leviticus, you have the, the idea of approaching God in holiness is, is kind of the main thing. Purity, the, the integrity of the nation of Israel. On either side of that, you have Exodus and Numbers. Both of those deal a lot with the wilderness wanderings and what the people were like in the wilderness. And then in Genesis, you have the inauguration of this covenant structure and then the covenant renewal in Deuteronomy. So at the core of that is Leviticus, which... We can divide roughly into three parts. The first part is about how we um, make offerings to God. And the second part is about purification from uncleanness. And the second part you have the Day of Atonement. Um, And the third section deals with standards for cleanness, congregational purity, and primarily worship practices. So it's interesting that the center of the Torah, certainly there's all sorts of ethical commands in Exodus and Deuteronomy and Numbers, but the center of the Torah is the worship of God. And his, the focus of the Torah as a whole is on how we rightly approach God, how we rightly worship God. So the, the main point is about how we approach God. So with your finger in Mark 7, um, we're going to start by just reading the first couple of verses of, of Leviticus. So in the second half of Exodus, we've just gone out of the description of the tabernacle. We talked about that last week in the the patterns of creation there. You had a fall with the golden calf, and then the tabernacle is actually erected after this golden calf incident. And so we've just come out of this episode where the glory of the Lord descends on the tabernacle, and the sacrifices are going to be described in this first part of Leviticus. So there's there's actually a creation cycle going on here. Uh, There's 
after the golden calf, between the golden calf and Nadab and Abihu, which happens in Leviticus 10. I'm not going to go in that, into that tonight, but that might be something you can look at and explore on your own later, now that you know kind of the structure of that. So let's start by reading. Um, I've got it printed. This, this is the first thing on your notes here. Um, Leviticus 1, 1 through 3. So the Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, which is the tabernacle, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting, that he may be accepted before the Lord. So we're already picking up on several themes. So the, the first thing that we run into in the book of Leviticus is this idea of offering. Now, I've got some Hebrew there. It's not as, it's, it's not as wild as it looks right now. But um, when we think of offerings, we, a lot of times we think of the Old Testament system as primarily focused on sacrifice. But there's actually a difference between an offering and a sacrifice. A sacrifice, we're killing an animal, um, and the idea of sacrifice has a lot to do with blood, atonement, that sort of thing. But not all offerings are sacrifices. And we'll actually look at, there's five offerings laid out here in the first part of Leviticus. And one of them, the one I misspelled here, number two, the grain offering, is not a sacrifice. It's a different one. Now, four of these are sacrifices, but um, an offering is that which is brought near. So you'll look at, I've, I've tried to highlight this in the scripture here. So the way that, that Hebrew works, and all, this is all Semitic, lang- Semitic languages, you have these three-letter stems. So the, the stem we're working with right now is kofresh bait, which are QRB is what you'll see um, in the notes here. And so there's a wordplay happening that kind of gets lost in, um, in English. But in verse 2, it says, when any, of you, when any one of you brings yakriv, an offering, korban, to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. So that's the, the first word we get for offering. It's, it's this idea of bringing something near, approaching God with an offering. And so the reason we're in Mark 7, we'll look at that in a second, is Jesus actually uses this word, korban, in the book of Mark to talk about the traditions of men. And this is kind of the framing word, the word that gets used as, as kind of a general catch-all. And then the other, all the other sacrifices have um, kind of more specified words. We're going to look at the only one, one that we're going to look at in Hebrew is this first one, the burnt offering, or the olah. We'll talk about that in more detail in a minute, but that's kind of a, a debated word. But the korban, the offering, is, is the center thing, and then we're bringing all these other things underneath it. So um, let's look at Mark 7 and see what Jesus is talking about with the korban. Um. So let's start in verse 9, Mark 7, verse 9. And he said to them, You, this is the Pharisees, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God 
in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But if you, but, but you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever, whatever you would have gained from me is korban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. So if you think about what, what korban means, it means bringing near, bringing, approaching God. And so the, the problem with this tradition that the Pharisees have set up is that Moses has a law about honoring father and mother. And they're saying, in order to approach God, it's okay for you to neglect your father and mother. But there's a disconnect there between the obedience of the heart and the things that we're supposed to be doing and approaching God. And what Jesus is saying is, if you're approaching God, if you're giving korban in this way where you're rejecting your father and your mother, then your approach to God is, is null and void, right? Um, you, you make void the word of God by, um, by your tradition that you've handed down because you're rejecting the law that God has set down and you're trying to appeal to this thing that he's, this, this idea of offering as a reason for neglecting your father and mother. But um, Jesus says that doesn't work. That's not how this korban thing works. And in fact, the point of the offerings in the book of Leviticus is that we approach God with purity. We approach God in the way that he's prescribed and we approach God... Uh, with the aim of becoming united to God and, and being in communion with God and being like God, which um, later in Leviticus 17, you get the, the famous, or is it Leviticus 18, 19? I can't remember, but be holy for I am holy. Be holy for I am holy. That's the central theme of Leviticus, and it gets picked up again in the New Testament. So this this idea of Sanctification, and that Peter picks up in First Peter, is coming from Leviticus. And our approach to God is, is part of this, this pursuit of holiness. So, go ahead and flip to Leviticus 1. Are there any questions about Mark? I think it's just an interesting, that, that gives some clarity on what, what Jesus is getting at. Um. Now, the first section, we're going to focus on the first section of Leviticus. I'm not going to get too much into some of the purity laws. Um, but the first section of Leviticus runs from Leviticus 1 um, to Leviticus 9, and the death of Nadab and Abihu is kind of a, a flip point, uh, a transition point, over into the idea of purging uncleanness. But Leviticus 1 through... Um, about halfway through six, deals with these five offerings. And so the five offerings are the olah, which is, that starts in verse three. Um, sometimes it's translated ascension offering or whole burnt offering. The second is the grain offering. The third is the peace offering. The fourth is the sin offering. And the fifth is the guilt offering. And so... Four of these, the Allah, the Ascension Whole Burnt Offering, the Peace Offering, Sin Offering, and Guilt Offering, all involve the slaughter of an animal. The Grain Offering is giving God bread. <laughs> um, sometimes you'll see that translated cereal offering, because it's trying to, to pull out, to draw out the fact that it's, it's not a, an animal sacrifice, that it's coming from the fruit of the ground. Um, well, I'll talk about that later, but... <clears throat> 
So let's go through these five offerings and, and consider um, how they all come together. So the first one is the ascension offering. So that starts in Leviticus. Well, I'm counting Leviticus 1 and 2 as kind of a header for this whole thing um, before we get to the, the idea of all the offerings. It's, Leviticus 1 and 2 is taking all the offerings together. So starting in verse 3. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting, that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord, and Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Then he shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into pieces, and the sons of Aaron shall put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall arrange the pieces, the head and the fat, on the wood that is on the fire on the altar. But its entrails and its legs he shall wash with water, and the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering, with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. It's actually a kind of a textual note here. Whenever you see food offering in Leviticus, it could mean an offering by fire. Um, I don't think that makes much difference exegetically, whether it's a food offering or an offering by fire, because both, both of those things are true. It is an offering of food, but it's also an offering by fire. So um, anytime you see that, that's kind of a, an open question. But So there's several things to notice here. Um, the first thing is, this is our, our first instance of the phrase without blemish. The, the Hebrew word is tamim. So in this context, kind of the, the immediate context, we're talking about a whole or complete or perfect, obviously there's no perfect animal, but there's a, the idea of a perfect animal, the best one you've got. But this word is also used in a moral sense. So when Noah is described as blameless before God, he's described as tamim, without blemish. And so there's a connection between this, this animal that's without blemish, that doesn't have any like, physical blemishes, and moral purity. And so the reason you bring an animal before God without blemish is because you're bringing something that is morally pure before God. right? So we have blemishes, we have, we're unrighteous, we have blame, but we bring this thing before God that does not have blame so we can approach him. He shall... Um, the idea is that we're trying to be accepted by God. It's, it's a, it's, um, verse 4, he shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall, it shall be accepted for him to make atonement uh, for him. Verse, verse 3 says, he shall bring, bring to the interest of the tent of meeting, that he may be accepted before the Lord. And so to be accepted before the Lord, we have to be tamim. We have to be blameless. We have to be without blemish. And so... This is not just in the burnt offering. This is in all of these offerings. They have to be blameless without blemish because those are the kinds of offerings that the Lord accepts. Blameless and blemish-free offerings. It's also interesting, I think that we can often get confused on this because uh, we envision the priests doing, doing the killing. But when you bring an offering before the Lord, it's you that has to kill the animal. I think that's kind of interesting because 
this isn't like we're, we're kind of letting the priest do all the work. The people are like really involved in this process. They come to the entrance of the tent of meeting and that's a bloody separation, right? Um, that place is probably flowing with blood all the time because all these animals are dying and being killed there. Um, and so we bring this blameless, blemish-free animal before the Lord. We put our hand on it, that signifying our unity with it, kill it, and then this animal is dismembered. Now, several animals are dismembered. You'll see this a lot happening over and over again. But in the case of the whole burnt offering, the dismemberment is, we, we separate the clean parts of the animal from the unclean parts of the animal. So you'll notice verse 8, um, the head and the fat are the clean parts. So consistent through these offerings, you'll also see that the fat is given to God. The fat is a symbol of purity. And the head is also pure. But the entrails, so its guts, and its legs, the part of it that touches the ground, have to be washed first. But in this case, they all get put together on the altar. So the priest takes this dead animal, divides up the clean parts, the unclean parts. The clean parts go directly on the altar. The unclean parts, he washes and then puts them on the altar. So what might be the significance of washing the unclean parts before you put them on the altar? What's the importance of that division? Are there any ideas on that? Right, so there's, there's this idea that the whole thing needs to be taken up, right? But the whole thing is not prepared to be taken up. And this is kind of a spoiler, but when we get to the sin offering, that same separation happens between the clean and the unclean, but the entrails and the legs and the sin offering get taken outside the camp to be burned. And so the thing that's, that makes this offering special is the idea that these things are purified and then put on the altar, which, by the way, Hebrew, um, Romans 12, 1 and 2, we're a living sacrifice before God. What do we have to be before we get put on the altar? Purified. Um, and so there's a sense in which, as the body of Christ, Jesus is already pure. He's already clean. But we're the body of Christ. We're, if we could be crass, his, his entrails and his legs, <laughs> right? We're the unclean parts of Jesus, and we need to be purified before we put on the altar. And so there's this washing that happens. Um, and we're about to get to, uh, toward the end of this, we'll talk about Leviticus 8, which is actually an order of worship there, where this, this stuff happens in an order that kind of makes sense of all this. So, um, about the translation of this word, I kind of prefer ascension offering here. Um, if you look at like a basic lexicon, it'll have whole burnt offering. Um, but the idea is that Everything is being lifted up to God. The whole animal is going up in smoke to, to God. Um, in the book of Ezra, the word Allah is used to talk about a staircase. So similar to like Jacob's ladder, right? There's a staircase to heaven. The Olah is our ascension up into heaven. Um, any questions about that offering? Comments, thoughts? The next offering is the grain offering. So this one is the one that's not a sacrifice. 
Um, there's no death. But it's a kind of, it's like a tithe. So it's, it's very similar to the way, um, you know, we would have tithes and offerings. They would have the grain offering. And you'll actually notice that there's two kinds of offerings, um, of grain offerings. So if you look at uh, chapter 2, verse 14, it says, If you offer a grain offering of first fruits to the Lord, you shall offer for the grain offering of your first fruits fresh ears, ears of grain, roasted with fire, crushed new grain. And you shall put oil on it and lay frankincense on it. It is a grain offering. And the priest shall burn as its memorial portion some of the crushed grain and some of the oil with all of its frankincense. It is a food offering to the Lord. So this grain offering, it can be the first fruits of your field. So it can be what we would call a tithe, the first tenth, the best tenth that we give to God. But that's not necessary. We can also give extra grain, extra um, grain offering. The purpose of this is for provision for the Levites. So um, you give a little bit to God, and the Levites get a little bit, but the, the idea is that we're providing for the temple service. We're providing for the tabernacle service um, in, in this offering. It's, it's support of the tabernacle and gratitude to God. Um, now, it's interesting that this is, a, this is not an offering of an animal because most of the offerings in the Bible involve an animal. Does anybody know what the first offering in the Bible that doesn't involve an animal is? Off the top of your head. Cain and Abel. Yeah. So if you look at Genesis 4, why might it be the case that Cain's offering is not accepted, but in Leviticus 2, it's totally okay for us to offer up grain to God? What's the difference? What's the difference there? Is there a difference? Right? So that's that's one level of it. That Cain. Um, didn't have, have a pure heart in this. Um, but there's also uh, uh, possibly a couple other things to think about. We're not totally sure of the purpose of Cain and Abel's offerings, um, whether that was an atonement offering of some sort, like a, a sin offering or a guilt offering. Um, but if we look at, uh, you don't have to flip there, but Genesis um, 4.3, in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. Now, I'll admit I'm about to walk into the realm of speculation, so take this with a grain of salt. But some, one of the things that happens in the grain offering is that there's preparation for it. So if you'll remember last week, we talked about how Noah, when he, his sin was greater because he was dealing with a more mature fruit, right? So there's, in, in the story of Adam and Eve, they eat from the fruit of the tree, but it's just kind of this raw fruit. In the story of Noah, when he sins, he's sinning with a mature fruit, a fruit that's been fermented, and it's been sitting and, and all that. So throughout the Bible... There's this idea that Israel is growing up in maturity. That Israel is, um, you'll, you'll see the, the language about Israel as a daughter, Zion as a daughter, but then she becomes a bride later, 
or she could also become a harlot. That's another, that's another road to go down. But you see a, a little girl becoming a woman in, in the nation of Israel. And so when you make bread, when you put together a piece of bread, now in this case there's no leaven, which, well, we can go down a rabbit hole with that, but <laughs> um, we're taking something from the ground. We're taking the, the grain that is, God gives us from the ground, and we're fermenting it, kind of. We're, we're maturing it. We're taking uh, something that God gives us, and we're, we're repackaging it. And so that's, that's the core of, of human creativity, right? It's to, to take what God gives you and to be creative with it. And so, again, this is speculation, but my impression of what Cain did was he went out in the fields and picked some crops and threw them on the altar. And without exercising his creative power to, to mature that, right? He's still acting like a little kid who you know, picks weeds out of the garden when what he should be doing is doing something more mature in producing this bread. So the, the part about the idea of, of maturity in the Bible, that's, that's totally, I'm, I'm comfortable saying that's totally biblical. The idea that Cain's not doing that, again, that's speculative, but um, yeah, do with that what you will. Um, but it's the same thing when we get to Hebrews, right? The, the author of Hebrews, who I think is Paul, um, talks about, you know, you're not ready for meat yet. Right? You're still drinking milk, but you should be ready for meat. And so there's this, in pursuit of our holiness, which again, Leviticus is about pursuit of holiness, purity, cleanness. Um, we should be maturing and growing. And so bread is, is a sign of that. So in communion, for example, we don't have um, raw grain. We're not eating a bowl of cereal and drinking grape juice. Well, we do drink grape juice, but ideally we would drink Wine. That's that's the the idea. Is it's a mature fermented thing that takes maturity to um, enjoy. Um, that's kind of a rabbit trail. But the idea here is that we're we're taking the things that God gives us and we're giving them back to God. So God gives us grain, uh, and there's there's a really intimate connection between the grain that God gives us in a way that's not really true with animals. Of course, God gives us animals, um, but we're much more reliant on. God for, for crops and for animals, right? You know, you can go buy feed for your chickens or whatever, but if, if I plant a seed and the soil's not good, like, there's really not a lot I can do about that besides maybe some fertilizer, but I'm really relying on God to work through this process. Um, and so our reliance on God turns around in gratitude. We repackage the things that God gives us and we give them back to God in a tithe sort of offering. So that's the... The grain offering. Questions, comments, concerns about that? And if I'm missing anything, feel free to throw it out there, too. So, um, The fourth offering, or the third offering, excuse me, is the peace offering. So, in this offering, now, I'm, I'm drawing from actually two descriptions of these offerings. In the first six chapters, there's one description, and then in the seventh chapter, or six and a half through the seventh chapter, um, there's specific instructions for what the priests ought to do. So we'll look at some of that in a second. But um, in this case, 
in the peace offering, the clean fat and the clean entrails are offered to God. So if we look at chapter 3, um, you bring an animal, male or female, offer it without blemish. This is tamim, blameless. Lay, lay your hand on it, kill it. And then verse 3, And from the sacrifice of the peace offering, as a food offering to the Lord, he shall offer the fat covering the entrails, and all the fat that is on the entrails, and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them at the loins, and the long lobe of the liver that he shall remove with the kidneys. Then Aaron's son shall burn it on the altar on top of the burnt offering, which is on the wood on the fire. It is a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. So, notice, again, we're thinking in terms of these animals. This isn't, some of this dismemberment can seem really arbitrary, but what makes kidneys and livers unique? Why are those special and set apart as clean when other organs aren't? They purify, right? So the liver purifies your blood, the kidney purifies um, water, and uh, is that right? I don't know what I don't know what a kidney does, but <laughs> I know the liver purifies your blood. But they're they're purifying organs, and so you, you'll actually see um, when we get to Leviticus seven, there's this idea that if you touch the offering, you're being purified because the offering is pure, and so. The offering, in some ways, is like a purifying agent. And so the kidneys and, and the liver are a purifying agent. So those things are set apart as clean parts of the animal versus the unclean other organs. So um, so we're, we're offering the fat, we're offering the clean parts of the animal to God. But there's no meat involved in this offering. So in the whole burnt offering, the whole animal gets absorbed in the, in the fire, gets burnt up. But in the peace offering, there's actually a communal meal that goes on. That's not clear in Leviticus 3. But if we go to chapter 7, um, verse 11, you see this is instructions for the priests on how to do the, the peace offering sacrifice. And so if we look at chapter 7, verse 15, it says, And the flesh of the sacrifice of his peace offerings for thanksgiving shall be eaten on the day of his offering. He shall not leave any of it until the morning. But if the sacrifice of his offering is a vow offering or a free will offering, it shall be eaten on the day that he offers his sacrifice, and on the next day what remains of it shall be eaten. So the unique thing about this sacrifice is that Several of the sacrifices, the priests get access to some of the food. But in this case, the, the people get access to the food, right? So the person who brings the sacrifice gets to enjoy a meal with God. That's what's happening. And so they come into the tent of meeting, they participate in this sacrifice, and they get to sit down at God's table in his house. In this case, it's this big bronze altar. Um, but there's a communion going on, right? So... In the ancient world, and this is even true today, it's, it's a sign of peace to eat at somebody's table. To, to be invited into their home, to sit at their table, means that you're in communion with them. That you trust each other, that you're not going to kill each other, right? If, if I let you into my home, I'm believing that you're not going to kill me, right? Um, and so in this offering, the people are sharing a meal 
with God. Now, this becomes, certainly in the Lord's Supper, the Passover is, is the primary background of that, but this peace offering, which is a, a weekly, daily, consistent offering, um, is as much a picture of this as, as the Passover. Jesus reappropriates Passover for the purpose of the Lord's Supper, but the peace offering is this more consistent thing. So we, we do communion more than once a year, right? And um, the peace offering is, is part of this, this meal that we have with God. Any questions about the peace offering? So where do you offer the peace offering? Um, the peace offering, well, a lot of these offerings, you could basically do them whenever you wanted. Um, but certainly, Sabbath day offerings will be happening, so the priest will be doing this on the Sabbath day. You'll also notice that a lot of, a lot of these involve... Um, a bull, so you probably couldn't kill a bull once a week, right? And it, that would be something that wealthy people would have access to that poor people wouldn't. And so there's a, a hierarchy of animals. If you can't afford a bull, then you do a sheep. If you can't afford a sheep, then you do a, a pigeon and, and, and so on. Um, so my impression is that most of this, and some of this, I'll have to sit down at some point and collate all this together, but that these were mostly in terms of like need-based need things. So if somebody sins, that's when you give the offering. But they would have been incredibly regular, you know, probably daily. Um, certainly by the temple, they're daily. When we get to the temple era, they're daily um, because people are constantly sinning. So. <laughs> if you get to, when we start talking about Let's go to the sin offering because this is that's relevant to that. Um, the sin offering is because the biggest, most expansive answer to that question, because you'll actually see there's there's different levels of of sin that are going on. Um, so it says in in chapter four, verse two, if anyone sins unintentionally in any of the Lord's commandments, then you do the sacrifice. In verse 13, if the whole congregation sins unintentionally, then you'll do these sacrifices. Um, then in verse 22, there's the provision for a leader sinning. Verse 27, there's a provision for the common people sinning. So it's kind of a both-and thing, right? So you could certainly, if you personally sinned, then you might bring a sacrifice before God. But there's also covenant structures going on. So the whole congregation of Israel is a covenant body, and they can sin as a covenant body. So if a priest sins, he's sinning just as he represents Israel before God. He also sins before, as Israel before God. And so he needs to purify himself as a representative of the body of Israel um, in his guilt. When a, a leader, like it says, sins, um, anybody that's a head of a family, a judge. In, in Moses' day, there were judges. Um, when these people sin, then they have a covenant duty beyond just as an individual person, but they also have a covenant duty to um, offer these sacrifices. So, um, and that, that's particularly brought out in reference to uh, the sin offerings. But we also we, we tend to think as modern people in terms of individuals, but kind of the basic unit of society for most of history was the family, the, and 
So a lot of these offerings would have been would have been done in terms of family life. So the grain offering, for example, which we do this anyway today with like our tithes and offerings, um, the grain offering you would do that as a as part of your household, right? Um, so the sin offerings are a little bit different in that respect, in that you can have individual sin or like a, a covenant body sinning, either through one person or through um, through multiple people sinning. Which is why, like, when you get to, to Job, Job makes sacrifices for his sons in case they have sinned. And so there's a sense in which his sons are responsible for the sin, but also Job is recognizing on some level that he has a covenant responsibility to, to make atonement for these sins. He's not personally responsible, and God's not going to hold him personally responsible, but he, he feels some obligation as a covenant head to make sacrifices for his sons, who seem to be pretty wild partiers. But um, is that, did that answer your question? Okay. <clears throat> so, in the sin offering, like I said before, we still have a, a similar dismemberment. Remember, the clean parts, the unclean parts get separated. And so... In this offering, though, the clean parts get burnt on the altar, but the unclean parts get taken out of the camp and burned separately. Is there any reason that might be the case? What do the unclean parts represent? The sin, right? And so um, what's happening is we're taking the, we're purifying this animal, right? The, it's different from the, the whole burnt offering, and we'll look at that in kind of context in a minute, but... Um, the idea is that the clean part gets offered to the Lord, but the unclean part gets sent outside the camp, outside the congregation of Israel, and outside of the, the, the congregation of the covenant people of God. And it's burned separately. So the purpose here is atonement and forgiveness. So once you've give, done the sacrifice, the priest will give you forgiveness. He'll, he'll pronounce that God has forgiven you for your sins. And it's kind of interesting, you'll notice that all of these refer to unintentional sins. So there's a sense of like generalness to this. Um, when we get to the guilt offering, it still kind of makes reference to, to unintentional sins, but there's a more of a restitution element. So uh, the idea is that it, with the sin offering that we're making a general atonement for like, you know, if I did anything wrong, this, this is going to cover it. Um, now the guilt offering is a little bit different. Because the guilt offering has a restitution component built in, a restoration component built in. Um, and it, it's much more interested in neighbor-to-neighbor relations than the sin offerings are. So if you look at chapter 6, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, If anyone sins and commits a, commits a breach of faith against the Lord by deceiving his neighbor in a matter of deposit or security or through robbery... Or if he has oppressed his neighbor or has found something lost and lied about it, swearing falsely, and any of all the things that people do and sin thereby, if he has sinned and realizes guilt and will restore what he took by robbery, robbery or what he got by oppression, or the deposit that was committed to him, or the lost thing that he found, or anything about which he has sworn falsely, he shall restore it in full and shall add a fifth to it and give it to him to whom it belongs. And he shall bring to the priest as his compensation to the Lord a ram without blemish out of the flock, or its equivalent for a guilt offering. And so the sin offering is really focused on vertical correction, right? 
We've sinned before God, and so we need uh, to make atonement before God. But, but we owe a debt to God too big to pay back, right? If, if we sin against God, the, the debt is infinite. And so in the sin offering, God just gives us forgiveness, right? In the guilt offering, in these neighbor-to-neighbor relationships where you've sinned against your neighbor, there's restitution involved. And this is... Um, this may be a distinction between ceremonial and civil law. So when we think about ceremonial law in the Old Testament, um, well, back up. There's three kinds of law in the Torah. Moral law, ceremonial law, and civil law. Moral law is the stuff that's abiding for us today, stuff like the Ten Commandments, um, stuff that deals with a moral precept, something that is true depending on circumstances, not depending on circumstances. Um, Ceremonial law, which is most of what we're dealing with here, is about restoring relationship with God, mostly. And civil law is mostly about restoring relationship with neighbor. And so moral law is the core of that. Ceremonial law restores relationship with God when we transgress moral law. And civil law restores relationship between men when we transgress moral law, neighbor to neighbor. So... There's some civil law component here um, when it says you're supposed to pay back one and one-fifth of whatever you stole from your neighbor or um, caused your neighbor to lose. That gets fleshed out more in like Deuteronomy, when it, which we'll get to that, but it's an exposition on the Ten Commandments. Um, and there's all sorts of more detailed extended regulations on what exactly um, you pay back and how you pay back and everything. But the general principle... One and one-fifth is laid down in Leviticus 6. So, these are the five offerings. The Olah, the Ascension offering, the Holborn offering, whatever you want to call that. The grain offering, the peace offering, which is the meal with God. The sin offering, restoring your relationship with God. And the guilt offering, restoring our relationship with, with others. So, does that make sense? Is everybody following? So, um, here, I'm sorry, the notes are a little bit cut off because I was running out of time, but um, I, have, I have more than three points left. <laughs> um, Leviticus 8, well, Leviticus um, 6, 8, all the way through chapter 7, gives specific instructions for the priests on these. So, you have the five offerings kind of laid out, and then there's further discussion and um, clarification when you get to chapters 6 and 7, specifically for what the priests are supposed to do. So there's pretty specific um, regulations for them. And so after all this has been laid out, here's the sacrifices the people are supposed to do, here's how the priests do it, then um, Moses needs to put together a priesthood. And in this case, it's Aaron and his sons who are um, going to be the priesthood. So chapters 8 and 9 are focused on um, the consecration of the priests, the ordination of the priests in chapter 8, and then their actual offerings in chapter 9. In chapter 10, Nadab and Abihu offer some bad offerings. But what we have in Leviticus 8 is a ordination service. Now, we're going to ordain Dean in a couple weeks, and we're not going to kill any bulls. But um, this ordination service is, is a pattern for us to 
to see like what kind of the purpose is, and it's it's opening up the purpose of these um, offerings. So, chapter eight, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, "Take Aaron and his sons with him, and the garments, and the anointing oil, and the bowl of the sin offering, and the two rams, and the bread, and the basket of the unleavened bread." So. He says, get all, get all your stuff together. Verse 3, get all the people together. And um, he puts the priestly garb on Aaron and his sons. Remember, that's all described in Exodus. So you have to know Exodus to know what it's talking about here in chapter 8. And so, verse 10, Moses takes the anointing oil and anoints the tabernacle, everything that's in it, and consecrates all that. So he's consecrating, setting things apart for God. So he sprinkles some oil on the altar, sprinkles it on the basin, and then he pours it on Aaron's head. So in, in some way, Aaron and Nadab and Abihu are like fixtures in the tabernacle. So the, all the pieces of the tabernacle get anointed, and then Aaron and his sons kind of function as, as pieces of furniture. <laughs> Things that are, that are used for the work of, of the tabernacle there. And so verse 14 we have this, the beginning of this worship service. So then Moses brought the bull of the sin offering, and Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the bull of the sin offering. And he killed it, and Moses took the blood with his fingers and put it on the horns of the altar around it and purified the altar and poured out the blood at the base of the altar and consecrated it to make atonement for it. And he took all the fat that was on the entrails and on the long lobe of the liver and the two kidneys with their fat, and Moses burned them on the altar. But the bull and its skin and its flesh and its dung, he burned up with fire outside the camp as the Lord commanded. So this is a sin offering for Nadab, Abihu, and Aaron. Now, it's interesting in verse 15 that he, makes, he consecrates and makes atonement for the altar. So has the altar sinned? I guess not. <laughs> um, so, but he's making atonement for it. And so this is, again, we're highlighting the fact that he, he puts blood on Aaron and his sons, and he puts blood on the altar, and he's consecrating all this at one time. So again, they're, they're kind of furniture in the tabernacle. Um, but he's, he's putting, so atonement is like a covering, right? Um, atonement is, is turning away the, the wrath of God. And so when, when Moses atones for the altar, it's not, it's, it's not that the altar is sinned and is in need of you know, repentance, but he's, he's setting it apart is essentially what's happening. I could go further on that, but I'm not. If you have questions about that, you can ask him later. Um, so the sin offering is the first thing that happens in this worship service. Aaron and his sons need cleansing, need forgiveness, in order to serve in the tabernacle, and so Moses starts with that. So that's the first movement. The second movement, in verse 18, then he presented the ram of the burnt offering, the olah, the ascension offering, and Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the ram, and he killed it. And Moses threw the blood against the sides of the altar. He cut the ram into pieces, and Moses burned the head and the pieces in the fat, he washed the entrails and the legs with water, and he burned the whole ram on the altar. It was a burnt offering with a pleasing aroma, a food offering for the Lord, as the Lord commanded Moses. So, 
this ascension offering is representative of the total dedication and total commitment of Aaron and Nadab and Abihu to the service in the tabernacle. So first step, their sins are atoned for. Second step, they offer up their, their whole selves to God as represented in the um, ascension offering, the whole burnt offering. Third movement, verse 22. Then he presented the other ram, the ram of ordination, and Aaron and his sons laid their heads on the head, laid their hands on the head of the ram, and he killed it. And this is kind of weird, but he took some of its blood and put it on the lobe of Aaron's right ear, on the thumb of his right hand, and on the big toe of his right foot. Then he presented Aaron's sons, and Moses put some of the blood on the lobes of their right ears, on the thumbs of their right hands, and on the big toes of their right feet. Through the blood against the altar. Um, and he goes on, he follows the instructions that are given. And then they eat, they eat this offering, right? So it culminates with a meal. Now, part of what's happening with, with the, the thumb, the feet, and the ear is we're, we're purifying those things for service in the temple, just like he's, he does with the altar. He's purifying the altar for service in the temple. He's purifying their ears so they can hear God. He's purifying their hands so that they can work for God. And he's purifying their feet so they can stand on holy ground. So that's, that's part of what's happening um, with that. There's, there's more that, that's going on there, but uh, we don't have time for all that. But you actually see a pretty detailed explanation of what's happening um, in, the, in this peace offering. So it's often called a, it's sometimes called a wave offering because what, what you do is you take the, the pieces that you're going to eat and you wave them before the Lord. And so you lift them up and you show them before the Lord and then um, the people eat. And so we have three movements. We have the sin offering. We have the ascension offering or the whole burnt offering where the whole animal is burnt up. And we have the um, peace offering where they sit down and share a meal with um, God. Now, this has some important implications for how we do worship, because while we are not bound by, you know, we're not going to sacrifice bulls in here because we're part of the new covenant. Remember to think in terms of covenant theology. We're no longer part of the Mosaic institutions, and we're, we're free in the new covenant. But we do live between Leviticus and Revelation. And so that has implications for how we think about worship and, and worship in the new covenant. So if you think about like a worship service, roughly we would follow a, a kind of pattern like this. So one of the first things we do is we confess our sins, right? And so we're, we're offering ourselves up, confessing our sins and receiving forgiveness. Then we hear a sermon, we sing songs, we pray, we do a confession of faith. All those things are us offering ourselves up to God. When we confess our faith, we're saying this is what we believe. We're committing ourselves to God. When we pray, we're relying on God for his help. When we hear a sermon, we're, we're saying, God, change us, make us new. When we sing, we're singing praises to God and offering up our voices to him. And so all of this is the whole burnt offering that we offer to God. And then we end with a meal. When we end with communion, that's the last thing we do. And there's a reason we do that at the end and not at the beginning, Right? So, theoretically, I guess, um, 
There's no specific New Testament instruction for us to do communion at the end of a service. But because we live between Leviticus and Revelation, and we understand that there's a pattern of forgiveness, repentance, consecration, and then communion, that pattern is laid out in the Old Testament and, in, in, um, and we're in continuity with that. That's the reason we do it at the end versus at the beginning. Because we understand that you need to go through these cycles of repentance and atonement and, and consecration before we can sit down at the Lord's table. If we want to be acceptable to God, which is, again, the whole point of Leviticus, is first to become holy and become acceptable to God, to approach God, then we need to do it in this pattern where we're repenting of our sins and being cleansed. And so um, that, that has several implications for our worship, but we also don't do sacrifices anymore. And the main reason for that is, well, it's twofold. For one, Jesus is our sacrifice. So Jesus um, is our sin offering. Jesus is our whole burnt offering, and Jesus is our um, peace offering. He, he serves the purpose of all these sacrifices, and he's, he's, these are types of Jesus and shadows of Jesus. But also, um, and let's go ahead and turn there to Romans 12. Paul is aware of all this stuff in Leviticus. He, he would be very familiar with it. But in Romans 12, verse 1, he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. And so we don't do sacrifices anymore in worship because we are the sacrifice. As part of the body of Christ, we, we join together in the sacrifice. So in the Old Covenant, with the ascension offering, for example, that offering that was burnt up entirely on the altar was representative of us. But now we no longer live in the types and shadows. We live in light of the new covenant, and so we can spiritually climb on the altar and be offered up to God. And so he says, We present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Greek is logikain liturgos, which is logical liturgy. Um, and so there's, there's a logic to what we do in worship and, and how we worship God, which is why, as Reformed people, we hold to the regular principle of worship, that we do in worship what God has commanded us to do, and we don't do extra other stuff. Um, that's why we don't have, like, plays, for example, on Sunday morning, is because that's not commanded by God. Um, and so as we approach God, um, again, we live between Leviticus and Revelation, and so as we think about how we approach God, how do we grow closer to God, how do we grow in holiness, Leviticus actually has something to say to us about that. Um, and as we look back with new covenant eyes on these sacrifices and on these offerings, um, a lot of this stuff becomes clear because we have a clear picture now in the new covenant of sin and grace. Not that in the old covenant they didn't have a picture of that, um, but it wasn't fully understood and um, fully grasped like we have now. So... Um, it's important, though, that we, we think, we, we don't want to just like lift everything out of Leviticus and say, well, this is going to be how we do worship, which that's what a lot of like Eastern Orthodox Roman Catholic worship is like. Um, they take too many of these types and shadows, and they say, this is how we're going to do it. So this is why, for example, if you go to like an Eastern Orthodox church, they have the, the Lord's table like behind um, 
a screen. You can't go back there. And there's this idea of like that, that's the most holy place and, and all that. Um, but we have, to, we have to balance these things, the, the old covenant types and shadows, and understanding those and growing in knowledge of those and how those inform our lives now. So I don't have any time to go any further. But <laughs> are there any questions, concerns, thoughts? I wish I could spend more time on this because, again, Leviticus is, is kind of, as much as, you know, the, the four most quoted books of the Old Testament and the New Testament are Genesis, Deuteronomy, Psalms, and Isaiah. Um, Leviticus, I imagine, is probably fifth. And Peter and Paul and Jesus love Leviticus as much as they love, love those other books. And even in the midst of all these regulations and, and rules about purity and holiness and, you know, purification and, and things that seem mundane, uh, they're teaching us about how we, as sacrifices, as living sacrifices, can offer ourselves to God. Probably awful. <laughs> Which is, is, is part of the point, you know, when you get to the Reformation, they talk about Jesus as a, like, we're re-sacrificing Jesus every Sunday. and That's not actually what the Roman Catholic Church teaches, but that, that was kind of the standard thought of, of the Reformation Day. Um, but that bloody mess is an old covenant thing, right? That's, that's um, but it's a picture of how we should think about our worship, that like, when, when we climb on the altar as, and we come to worship, um, it's not supposed to be something that is like easy and, and fun and, you know, it, it may be a joyful occasion and it may be easy in some sense, but um, it's also supposed to, supposed to be sanctifying and it's, we're supposed to be like, parts of us are supposed to be cut out <laughs> as we come to worship God. And um, the bloody mess that you see in, in the tabernacle, um, when we start dealing with our sins, there's a bloody mess that we have to deal with. And um, the way you deal with it is by offering it up to God. So, But yes, it would have smelled awful. <laughs> Any other questions, concerns? So the choir, I hear the choir coming, ready to come in, but uh, let's pray, and we'll head out. Father, we thank you for your word, um, and for the book of Leviticus, um, that, that you've given us as we think about holiness, and your call on us to be holy. Father, would you teach us to offer ourselves up as a Allah, as an ascension offering, as a whole burnt offering? Would you purge us of our sin? Would you send our sin outside the camp? Would you burn it up far away from us and, and as far as the east is from the west, would you remove our transgressions from us? And Father, would you invite us to your table and to a meal to join with you in communion and love and hope? Father, thank you for Jesus Christ, for his sacrifice and in inviting us to your table. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.